Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. James Fegan, White Sox reporter for The Athletic. Yes, James. On Twitter at J.R. Fegan. I can anticipate this question is probably way too early, but excellent. Too soon. <laughs> too soon. Asking the questions to get the answers you need. If you knew that Abreu was available to be the runner there, would you have gone to him instead of Hendricks? If I'd known that, I didn't know that. I'd have checked the rule. I'm guessing you know the rules better. Now I know. James Fegan with Lawrence Holmes on 670 The School. 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 James joins me on the Circuit Resort and Casino Hotline. Circuit Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. It's going to be a regular thing. I'm very excited about having James Fegan give us some perspective and context when it comes to covering the White Sox. You should get a subscription to The Athletic just so you can keep up on what's going on with White Sox news, like the stuff that James brings to the people. Hello, sir. I'm dying at that intro lead. <laughs> this is like a bizarro version of this is your life that I'm listening to. Well, that's that's the way that we want to bring you in. We want you to, to really think back and reflect on all those moments when you've put White Sox people in uncomfortable positions by simply doing your job. And I wasn't trying to do anything. I was just curious. <laughs> put that on my tombstone. But that's that's why you're so good at this is that you have questions and and it ended up being some really incredible moments for us as White Sox fans to hear you go back and forth with people about things that are important to them. So let's start with some of the important stuff. What's the latest on A.J. Pollock? What's the latest on Lucas Giolito? Well, A.J. Pollock was supposed to miss basically this series coming up anyway because of paternity leave and... You know, until that's kind of resolved, I guess the hope is that he can come back and, and maybe play right afterwards. You know, the way it happened when he came off, especially with his history, you know, I, I just thought, you know, book it 10-game IL uh, right off the bat. But he really tried to say that it was not that big of a deal, that he was informed by the fact that he had strained both his hamstrings at points last season, and that's why he didn't push it farther than he did. He recognized that it was kind of the precursor to something right off the bat. I would think with the way this team is built, with the way their goals are, um, with how precautious they're trying to be about everything, with the fact that, you know, if this team kind of, you know, goes 500 through April, it's not the end of the world, that you, you would be precautious of this and just sit them and make sure it's all the way gone and not risk anything as far as cropping up and becoming a major, like, four- to six-week hamstring strain. But it remains to be seen they haven't really started hinting at any kind of corresponding they'd move they'd make at that for him at this point. They've held the line, even though there has been a roster move for it, uh, which is kind of strange two days afterwards, that Giolito is going to miss two starts. And, you know, that would, of course, uh, you know, necessitate a 10-day placement. Uh, I think there's been some, uh, you know, Anderson Severino's agent tweeted out that he would be called up, so that would likely be a corresponding move to just add another arm uh, before they decide what they're going to do for his rotation spot on Thursday. I know that you do the deep dives into this stuff, and and we often joke about players – Coming into camp, say it with me now, in the best shape of their lives. But Lucas Giolito did do something that's been a little bit different with his training this past offseason. For White Sox fans that don't know, what did he do? I mean, like, I can't say if it's the best shape of his life, but he definitely showed up different. Like, he had a plan. He was executing it. He came in, like, easily 20 pounds heavier uh, just noticeably thicker all the way through the midsection, uh, especially his legs, especially his torso, um, with the idea of, and you saw it maybe last season, early April, in the 
Seattle series of when he, you know, had a, a stretch where he had that 40 pitch inning and you saw him start sinking down to 91, 92 with his velocity band. So the whole goal was to start, stop, you know, kind of eliminate those type of outings where he's a little bit down. Uh, he didn't expect to like all of a sudden start throwing a hundred again, like his high school days, but he wanted to just have those days where he's consistently 94, 95 and is, is strong throughout and, and builds up over the course of the outing. He wanted that to be consistent. So he came in with his new physique and <clears throat> obviously, you know, put a lot into the idea that he was going to finally, you know, achieve this goal of 200 innings that he's been, uh, you know, kind of pushing for for so long. And of course, you know, that's part of the big frustration is that to have, both this injury and kind of a strange injury uh, that you don't really see often with pictures of a low abdominal strain right off the bat. So, you know, I, I you know, I was asked about yesterday, do I think this is related? Um, I don't know. I, I'm not, one, I'm not knowledgeable enough about physiology. You know, I'll ask my mom later today, but <laughs> I don't know if I have an answer, but I think it's too early to say it's, it's kind of speculative. It's probably something that we'd probably look at in hindsight about whether or not, you know, this regimen really affected it. You know, I think it's still at this point looks like a blip and, and something you can come back from pretty soon that he's not feeling a lot of discomfort, but it's not the, the earliest indicator that all of this uh, worked the way he wanted to, that you'd want to see. How's mom doing with being a TV star now? <laughs> uh, she's the one, you know, texting me uh, to circulate the promos every time. So I guess I'm her social media manager whenever she, she does this. So. She's trying to get that shine. Hey, hey, she's worked her whole life to, to be an expert in the field, and, th- and there she is right there trying to keep people healthy on TV. I think she should be looking for the shine, and I think you should be giving it to her. No one has, like, a better, like, immediate knowledge of what my Twitter follower account is than her when, right after she's texting me, like, some PSA that she's trying to get circulated. Well, I mean, she, she understands where the, the, the bread is buttered, and I appreciate her. For that, I, I was talking in the last segment. And we're talking with James Fegan. We're going to make this a regular thing. You should be following him on Twitter at JR Fegan. You should also get a subscription to The Athletic and read his work there. I was talking about the, the, the rules of the lockout and, and how it's the training staffs are starting over, not at zero, but pretty close to it when it comes to players because of the lack of contact. How hard has it been? for both player and training staff, and the White Sox have a have partially a new training staff, to make sure that everyone is in the best possible uh, start of the season shape that they can be? Um, basically, normally you, you submit a plan to the player um, to take into the offseason, and they're still able to do that. But the White Sox had like, ways for players to check in, log their workouts, show what they're doing, all throughout it, and instead you had a three-plus-month just blackout period uh, where not only you not really know what they're doing or how they're going to show up uh, up until the day that the lockout ended, which is, you know, you, know, you had eight, ten guys in camp like right after the deal was struck on a Thursday afternoon, but especially not being able to track the throwing of guys, and that's where you had the issues of, you know, Dylan Seath had done everything and been extremely active and, you know, trained really well, but hadn't found a, a way to face live hitters the way that you'd want to, or, you know, finding out that Michael Kopech had gotten COVID in late February and that it kind of shut down his buildup. And that's why you saw him only throwing four innings in his debut here. So I, I think probably more than even the outage, because I think largely everyone kind of did what they were supposed to. I don't think they had a big example of someone showing up to camp out of shape is more about 
you know, arranging, you know, buildup of, of facing hitters on their own that they struggled with. I think what you're really dealing with is the, you know, the rapid buildup of, of activity from, you know, just off season training mode and everybody kind of in a holding pattern, not wanting to get, you know, too keyed up if the season wasn't going to start until May to, you know, you basically did three weeks that you went from zero to 60 in three weeks of guys are doing, you know, you know playing high intensity games and not maybe giving the individual attention to what everyone's fitness plan is that you'd want to over the course of a normal spring training. Yeah. And it, it looks like, I think we're going to see this all around the league. I, I really do. I think that there's going to be trouble with this and guys are going to end up with some nagging injuries. How weird has it been for the players since you're there, you're talking with these guys, this last, these last starts to the three seasons, how off routine are all these guys at this point? I, I wonder, like we, we haven't seen a normal season in uh, you know since 2019. Essentially, I feel um, I, I, I feel like there's always been something when we're looking at down seasons um, that we can look back and say like this is a byproduct of the circumstance. You know, whether you know obviously with the the 60 game season um, and obviously last year, I think basically the story of why the 2020 White Sox got eliminated is that rotation wore down in the second half. Uh, when they hit a significantly higher inning clip than they had worked the season before. As diligent as a lot of those guys were, you know, Lance Lynn kind of threw, uh, you know, bullpens all throughout the lockout to kind of stay ready for it. But it's still, still just not the same of a full season of games. And you kind of saw them bear the cost of that. Now, it seems like now with, you know, possibly by the end of the start of tomorrow, eight or nine guys on the White Sox IL in the first week, you're seeing that more front-loaded of the, the lack of ramp up is really going to affect and define a lot of the first half of their season. And I think it's really about just knowing how strong the roster is overall, especially with the offense looks like it's just going to bash. Even when it's a man or two down, it has that kind of depth, you know, provided they don't have to trade away from it for pitching at some point. Um, It's about kind of treading water as much as they can. And especially with expanded playoffs to put themselves in a position to close strongly uh, when they are full strength. And maybe when the rotation looks a little bit better with a, you know, a surgically repaired Lance Lynn's knee out there. What is the timetable for him to return? I like the way they phrase it. It just seems very realistic to just say June. Um, obviously with Lynn kind of joining them uh, on their road trip, like why right after this homestand and he's going to be throwing pretty regularly where he wants to be, he probably wants to beat that four week, you know, Rick Hans put it as, basically four weeks to recovery until he's off the mound and then set it as another four weeks of him ramping up. Given that we just went through a spring training where everybody was ramping up in three weeks, I'm betting Lance Lynn is very much uh, geared toward beating that four-week estimate by a lot. But that's kind of that timeline sets it at June, and it's really upon how much they're willing to push a guy that they obviously need in October or you know let him push that, his way into the rotation before that. But it kind of remains to be seen. I kind of think that the demands of what they have, given like the other spots, the rotation is a little shaky. Might might provide a little influence to uh, you know let him pitch in late May, but we'll we'll see. What did you think of what you saw from Michael Kopech yesterday? I thought he was navigating without you know anything close to what we think is Michael Kopech. Um, you know, the thing we think of of Michael Kopech is fastball velocity all the time about a guy who's thrown a hundred in games before. And obviously he was working more like 93, 97 yesterday, but something that Michael really pointed out is to look at the velocity of his breaking pitches. Cause that both 
is telling you a lot about the sharpness uh, of the breaking pitch. When he's higher 80s at the slider, that's the, the nasty, you know, 60 to 70 grade pitch that is really dominating. And it was probably more low 80s. You probably even saw one at 80 miles an hour yesterday. And it also shows you a lot where he is mechanically because when that thing is, he's really synced up, that thing is harder and tighter than it was yesterday. He was able to get some swings and misses. He struck out Austin Meadows with it, who was the guy who was terrorizing them all series. But that's really when you see those things start creeping up. When you see 80 mile hour curveballs, you see 89 mile hour sliders. That's Michael Kopech. I think, you know, the phrase he uses is that my velocity is always going to be there when you need it. He pumped 97 to pop, uh, buy some guys for strikeouts when he needed to yesterday. But it's really when you see the, the off speed start to sharpen up that that's the guy we're seeing. That's the guy that you've been told about. And the fact that he's able to give him four innings of one run ball without looking like that guy was, was obviously something they'll take right now. Does he have a, a, a changeup that he's confident in? He says so. And, you know, it's something they were very optimistic in spring training about. And, something that when he was working with Everett Tiford and uh, Matt Zaleski, when he's rehabbing from uh, Tommy John back in 2019, that they said they made a lot of progress with. But I haven't seen a lot in games, you know, and at a certain point I, I can tell you about, like, the progress they made and how much velocity they've killed off of it and how he's kind of improved his, his motion with it. But it is something that has to really show up in games before we start talking about it as a major weapon, maybe more left-handed uh, heavy lineups than the Tigers who really just kind of, had Meadows and not a whole lot more to threaten them with uh, might bring it out a little bit, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, Ronaldo Lopez talking about his curveball a lot, that he still comes out and he's mostly fastball slider. Uh, I think the, the guy who's really probably shown that he has added a four pitch and really showed it improved in the games was Giolito in those first four innings, making it all the more, you know, unfortunate that he went down. How hard has it been for Kopech where he's, he was supposed to be a starter? And that that's what you were trending towards. And then to kind of have the, the weird three years that he's had, too, how hard is this transition from bullpen guy to back to being a starter? Um, I think it's it's difficult, but, you know, I think, if anything, he's, he's expressed how much more comfortable he is doing what he is not doing now. Uh, I think the difficult part is over. I think he understood the part about his, his innings and he ramped up and even wanted to be carefully handled in that way to, to avoid kind of jumping too quickly or, or running into any kind of kind of the secondary problems you see after Tommy John surgery or guys have flexor strains or something like that. So I, I think they manage them well, but everything he said about the way he approaches the game mentally and how he's able to make adjustments and calm himself and the value he takes in having midweek uh, bullpens, uh, between starts rather than just kind of getting hot every single time uh, preparing to pitch every night, that this is really what he wants to do. I, I think what we're seeing right now is, is more the the effects of the buildup or the lack thereof that he had than kind of a hard transition to the role. This this is what he's you know been pre- preparing to do since he was throwing progressions as a six-year-old uh, in this you know, abandoned schoolyard that I, I went to with his dad uh, all by myself back in 2018. I know that Dylan Cease is really good against Detroit, like career-wise. So I'm trying not to make too much about what I saw. But are we seeing between how he pitched last year during the regular season and his first start, are we seeing a maturation of him and him matching his potential? Yeah, he's he's definitely getting closer to it. Um, I still think you see – I mean, last year – I don't think that was the finished product at all. I, I still think you see somebody who 
uh, maybe when the chips are down or when things aren't working mechanically is, is really fastball slidery. And that was even kind of a critique that he kind of had yesterday was that he didn't really think everything was working, but he's someone who obviously throws upper nineties and has a wipeout slider that you can kind of get through lineups like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're seeing something closer. I think his changeup really looked good in spring training where last year was kind of like amazing that someone had a pitch that was 20 mile or slower than his fastball, but wasn't something that necessarily worked in application as well. But yeah, I, I think there's another level of Dylan Cease that we're getting inching towards. I don't know if we're going to see it, you know, all season or if it's, this is going to be, you know, where he gets Cy Young votes or anything like that. But I, I think there is top of the rotation potential there. And the more you kind of see him being able to turn in good starts when not everything is working like he was the other day, uh, the more you see him kind of perform at a level of a number three, number two starter, uh, even when it's not working, it's just going to make those starts where he's truly dominant, you know, stand out more and, and really provide a consistent product over the whole full year. James, I'm very excited that you're going to be a, a, a fixture on the show. I mean, you got your own open now. You're, you're clearly a superstar. Um, I'm, I appreciate you jumping on, and I'm looking forward to a season of us talking about White Sox baseball. Well, uh, I think that I will stop giggling at the intro uh, by some point in June, but it, it might take a while. All right, that's fine. We might even switch it up on you. You never know. So we, we might go for the giggle. And and I'll I'll have Ray take a listen to it and see if there, I mean, there's going to be more press conferences with you, so the possibility looms that there could be something that we could throw into another version of the open. So just be aware. All right, I'll see you. That is James Feigen of the Athletic. He's going to be talking White Sox with us throughout the year. The Sox Machine guys are going to be on the show too. We're going to rotate Jim and Josh. So we're going to get you covered when it comes to talking about the White Sox. And we've got you covered with Stoney. And we've also got you covered on Cubs stuff, too. I'm excited about some of the things we're going to do with our Cubs coverage as well. Our guy Russ Dorsey is going to be on. And we're going to do some fun stuff throughout baseball season. I'm The, the more I watched, the more I was excited about the shows that we were going to do. And we've basically talked baseball now for the last 80 minutes of the show, which is good. It also means that there's some time for us to talk basketball. The Bulls have an opponent for the playoffs. It's probably the one opponent you didn't want them to have. We'll discuss that next here on The Score.